Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about Dead of Winter and its expansion, The Long Night. But first, what have we been playing? So we actually just finished a game inspired by one of the Kickstarters that we recently saw. So Empires of the Void 2 is currently on Kickstarters, uh, so we decided to go ahead and try Empires of the Void 1. Right. Uh, which we had never played. Yeah, we had never played. It's my ongoing collection trying to collect every single one of Ryan Lockhart's games. Worth which I it. I think I'm about one expansion and I think one game away from that. And one, I have the second edition of City of Iron, so I don't have the first edition or the expansion of that. I so, think you're probably still okay in the eyes of most collectors. Probably. But, you know, that, that was just the, the goal to get them all and yeah we finally got to bring this one to table and it seems this is the first game that he published yeah i think on the uh the kickstarter for empires of the void 2 he mentions that this is a sequel to the first game that he ever published empires of the void 1 and it was it was good you know it had a lot of the the sort of core elements some some of the kind of cartoony but very stylistic graphics that he uses all the time a lot of dice-based mechanics Mm -hmm. a lot of um management of trade goods so kind of like rare resources lots of things that you can see as common threads throughout his games Mm -hmm. but there were also ways in which it was sort of unpolished you know we could tell while we were playing it i think that it was unrefined in ways that some of his later games were yeah it's almost like a diamond in the rough kind of thing where the game itself like the ideas in the game and everything like that seemed to be really well thought out and like the overall feel of the game and the idea and everything behind it seemed pretty good, but there were definitely some mechanical problems in there that were a bit frustrating. Mm-hmm. And though all of his games pretty much require a lot of dice rolling and therefore a bit of luck, this one had the least mitigation that I've seen so far, and that was my biggest hang up on it. Yeah, so, that's that's exactly what I was gonna say. Is yeah. Yeah. Still a very fun game, you know, a, a sort of palette, a theme that we haven't seen from some of his other games, you know, Above and Below, Islebound, very fantasy-inspired, mm-hmm. so it was good to see a, a hard sci-fi one from him, and it was certainly still enjoyable. I very yeah. much look forward to uh, seeing where the, the Kickstarter for the second one goes. I'm excited about it, so I look forward to, to giving that a shot when it comes out. Yeah, exactly. I'm really curious to see how the experience of making all the games that he has so far will influence the changes between Empires of the Void 1 and Empires of the Void 2. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see how the mechanics have changed and how they will be refined based on the things that he learned with his other games. Yeah, definitely something to look out for. But so in addition to playing that, I actually was able to sit down and play A Quiet Year, which is the game that I mentioned last week that I had acquired and not yet played. So I can now say that I've played it and I love it exactly as much as I thought I would. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I played with two of our good friends who I very carefully selected because A Quiet Year is very much a game in which you have to be willing to participate in the sort of collaborative narrative experience. You know, um, if you're the type of person who's going to mid-max and say, you know, we don't have any shortages of anything, or if we do spontaneously develop a shortage, then I'm going to use the discover something new action to fix that problem. It's, you know, it takes away from the final experience. So you have to be in a game with with people who are willing to go in on the bad, 
sometimes. You know, you have to be willing to throw curveballs at your society, and you have to be willing to do all this for the sake of the story. So these were two people that I had chosen specifically because I trusted them to be able to do that, and it was amazing. We had so much fun with it. It was really very intense in a lot of ways. You know, there's the the situations that are generated by the cards themselves that make you think about, okay, well, how would your people respond to this scenario? But then there's also the things that, that you generate, you know, yourself as players, as, you know, a means to introduce new conflict or to resolve existing conflict. So the, the sort of process of weaving all those threads together and seeing where you end up was something that I very, very much enjoyed. Uh, and I know you will be joining us for our next game, which is going to be this Friday, and we're going to record it. We're going we're gonna to turn it into something for the podcast. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really curious to see how it works because I am a bit of a skeptic when it comes to games that are so purely narrative-driven without as much in the whole mechanics kind of thing. And I'm very curious to see whether this is going to be a kind of game that I love or I don't. I think I'm going to enjoy it because it sounds really cool, but at the same time, there is that whole hoping that no one actually does go and, like, you know, start ignoring, like, think problems that have been done or anything like that, or just want to say, no, that's not actually happening or anything like that. So I'm just curious to see how it works, and I'm really looking forward to trying trying it out and recording it and showing you guys how, how it goes. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. But, yeah. um other RPG experience, you guys made it to the D&D table once again. Yes, we did. How are the continued misadventures of your motley crew? Well, misadventurous. Appropriate. <laughs> so last session was pretty much just one day in the life of us fugitives now, who went back into the city, which I was hoping would not actually happen. So we went in through the sewers and then we were thinking, like, oh, okay, we'll just go through the sewers to where the prison is, go up through the sewers to the prison, sneak in, sneak out, and go. Sure. But like like, the exit that we found was into one of the inns. It was into the cellar of one of the inns. Mm-hmm. And then as we got there, we my thought was, you know, let's just go back in the sewers and look for a different exit. But instead, we ended up going through the kitchen and, like, going out into the actual town. Okay. And now we don't have an entrance to the sewer, which means we don't have an entrance to, to like, our escape route, really. That isn't, like, half the town away. <laughs> we're, there's no way in heck that we're ever going to be able to get through the town, like, front gates or anything like that. Because as soon as they see us, they're going to arrest us. Right. So it's just, like, we're in the town, and now like, I'm pretty sure that we could get out if we really tried. Even if we had to fight our way into the sewers, whatever. We also want to get our stuff back. So... We have to figure out a way into like you know the prison or, or anything like that. So we spent all of last session discussing all different plans for the prison break-in, pretty much. Sure, a reverse prison break. Yeah, a reverse prison break. And, of course, misadventures ensued because when I went with Pip, who is our gnome rogue. Okay. So, like, I'm sneaky, he's sneaky. The third person that came with us was Alice, the fighter. Was not sneaky. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine. He was there to be like you know the kind of backup kind of muscle because we what we wanted to do was capture a guard in order to then allow Pip to do his disguised self to make him look like the guard 
and then go into the actual prison to get the stuff. And it sounds reasonable enough. Yeah, so like as as we're like getting to our stakeout spot that Pip found, we encounter a patrol which recognizes Alis because he wasn't disguised while the rest of us were. And then as soon as that happened, Pip and I both bolted. And Alis went on to murder the whole guard patrol, which was three people within six seconds of the start of the... Uh, (laughs) And then hid the bodies, or at least two out of the three bodies, in barrels along the way and came back to our hideout drenched in blood. Keeping it on the down low, clearly. We did manage to capture the guard and everything, and we the whole plan is going on ahead, which is going to be interesting. So Pip is going to be sneaking in. Aurelia, who is our sorceress, is going to be in the lookout spot, which we use to like find the guard. And she's going to be there just in case any anything goes down. Mm-hmm. And then Alys and Rowan, who is our monk, are going to be hidden close by with an earshot so that they can be back up, pretty much. And me, well, I'm getting sent out of the town to, you know, check the rendezvous point and all that kind of stuff. Yay. Yay. So that's what I'm going to be doing next session. Probably also going to be trying to steal the horses back, which are being kept pretty much in in an impound stable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's Faerun Vice, I guess. It was very, very much a Shadowrun-esque experience with us trying to figure out how to get into places and, like, how everything worked and doing all that. And so it'll be an interesting next session. All the more because the evil character, me, (laughs) is the moral compass of the group currently. Yeah, this is uh, completely bass-ackwards. Yeah. But uh, I, I look forward to hearing from it. It's never a dull moment. When I'm hearing about you guys at the table, so I look forward to that. It's it's a very interesting campaign so far, so I'm really looking forward to the next session. Well, that's what we've been playing. And now, let's take a bite out of our review of Dead of Winter, as well as Dead of Winter Long Night. So let's start off with talking about how the game works. Right, so uh, essentially the players between 2 and 5 are going to be controlling a small group of survivors. By default, it's two survivors per player, and that can scale up over the course of the game as you discover more survivors. And so right away, it gets at one of the core mechanics is that each player doesn't have a unique survivor profile. You know, you're not playing one person, you're not equipping yourself. You have a cadre of survivors that you can send to various locations to do different things. So you can attack zombies, you can search for equipment across the various locations. Each of your survivors can perform a certain number of actions, and the more survivors that you have, the more dice you can roll. Dice are what determine what activities you can do. So if you roll really well, you might be able to attack a lot, search a lot, Worst case scenario, you don't roll very well. You can still use your dice to do things like clean out the compound that you have at your your home base and other kind of like maintenance and upkeep types of things. Yeah, and in general, the game has a few different things that you're trying to accomplish. First off, you're trying to accomplish the actual main goal of the game. And that is different based on the scenario that you choose. So each scenario has a different setup, a different target or goal so the last one that we played we had four rounds completed and we had to get items from 
all of the locations and put them underneath the pretty much scenario card. Right. There are a lot of other kinds of scenarios. I believe that there are 10 to 12 in each box. That sounds right. And then they also have two sides, one being the easy side, one being the hard side. So there's a lot of replayability there. Mm -hmm. And customizability too. Each of them is, some of them are short, some of them are long, but you can really tailor the difficulty and the length to the type of experience you want to have. Because it's a it's a pretty intense game. You know, if you go for one of the long scenarios, you'd have to be prepared to be at the table for upwards of three hours. So if that's not what you're into, you can just say, you know what, let's go for the easy side on one of the shorter scenarios. Let's get a taste of some zombies and then head out. Yep, there you go. And then the other thing that uh, you have to do is you have your crisis situations. And those trigger each turn or each round technically so those are ones that you reveal at the beginning of the round and it's something that like oh my god this is happening right now and we have to solve this before the end of the round and these usually have to do with searching for specific items and putting them into the crisis uh, pile pretty much to uh, make sure to solve this. So it could be tools, medicine, food, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you also have that pressure. And the other thing that you have is feeding your survivors. So every two survivors that you have at your base cost one food to upkeep. If you don't have enough food, then you take starvation tokens, which you then have to use to uh, decrease your morale. If you get to zero morale, you're done. So you have to make sure to have enough food for everyone in your colony at the end of each round. And you also have to make sure that no one in your colony like gets overrun by zombies. Exactly. So, you know, if you wanted to just play a post-apocalyptic survivor game, you could do that. But of course, there's zombies and they're trying to ruin your day. So each game round, you have the crisis, which generates at the beginning of the turn. It Then each of the players has an opportunity to go out, collect what they're going to do, contribute towards the crisis, try to stave that off. And then at the end of each round, you have the sort of upkeep phase in which the players take the place of the NPCs, the opponents. So that's when you pay your food, that's when you check to see whether or not the crisis resolves successfully, and that's when you spawn zombies. Zombies spawn, similar to feeding, one for every two survivors at the compound, or one for each survivor at each location that is not the colony. So the zombies that are going to spawn, they're going to put pressure on you, just like the food, just like the crisis. They're going to force you to make certain tactical decisions. Okay, do I attack this zombie? Do I go to this particular location in order to search for a very essential item, even though it's dangerous? And that drives the core of gameplay. It's about resource management, and it's also about making sure that you balance the risk. Because between the the shortened turn limit and the fact that you just have to get a lot of stuff every turn. You have to get lots of food. You have to get lots of resources to contribute to the crisis. There's no way that you're ever going to be able to play a game that is completely risk-free. And that's something that we see a lot of times in these sort of survival-based cooperative games. Robinson Crusoe in particular comes to mind. You can play it safe, but you're never going to accomplish the objectives that you need to in time. Exactly. And this is further complicated by the fact that everyone has a secret objective. Yes, yes. And in the base game, and it just the, the way that normally you play it is uh, you have a deck of all these secret objectives. You go for however many players you have, double that number, draw that many secret objectives, and add one betrayal. These are then shuffled, and one is given to each player. That means that there is a chance that one player is actually working against the rest of the team. 
Right, because at the end of the game, you win if you've completed your secret objective. And every secret objective that isn't the betrayer says, as its first clause, the main objective is completed. So even no matter what your secret objective is, if you have to stockpile food, you're still going to have to contribute that food in order for the team to meet the main objective. But the betrayer, they don't care about the main objective. They just care about doing whatever it is they need to do. Exactly. And sometimes I can line up for a little while with, with the actual main objective or with what the other players are trying to do, and they'll work together with, with the other players. And then all of a sudden, it'll come to the fact that wait, we need this exact thing, and I know that you have it. Why are you not contributing? And then it comes out, and it seems that we have a betrayer in our midst. Right. But at the same time, some of the people who have the actual just regular objectives, they might have something in their hands that you know is necessary. So you need medicine for a crisis, but they don't want to give it out because they need it for their objective. Mm -hmm. And without that, they don't win. So they may even put the burden on the other players. And this is where a lot of the tension comes in, where even if you don't 100% have a betrayer, it's very possible that people are going to start looking suspicious, that they're going to you know, really focus on their objective and make it almost look like they are the betrayer. Right, yeah. The, the secret objectives introduce so much uncertainty into the game because even if you were relatively certain that there's no betrayer on the field there's the possibility that some people are going to start taking selfish actions once they see that the main objective is coming up on being completed because they know oh crap i'm not going to win unless i'm stockpiling you know two gasoline and a firearm and some food so there's going to be a lot of those tough decision making processes that the team is just going to have to grapple with because there's no way to force someone to contribute their food Mm -hmm. there is however an exile mechanic So at any point during the turn, if someone suspects they're of being a betrayer or simply someone who's not acting in the best interest of the team, they can initiate an exile vote. And once that happens, each person around the table gets to vote yay or nay. And if the verdict passes, essentially, then whoever was the target of that vote is no longer in the colony. They're still in the game which leads to all sorts of interesting dynamics, but they have to get rid of their secret objective, whether or not it was the betrayer. They have no way of knowing, the the people who voted, that is, Mm -hmm. have no way of knowing whether they've actually just cast out a betrayer, Mm -hmm. but that secret objective is gone and replaced by one of the exile secret objectives, which interact with a whole different set of priorities. So it's interesting to see that even in a worst-case scenario where you have to essentially split the party... That person isn't out of the game. They now just have a competing set of things going on and introduce whole new sets of tension. Yep, exactly. Yeah, they compete now for resources and like you know, going through the different locations and searching for different things. So in general, it can be a very interesting dynamic once someone gets exiled. The last major part, and I think the part that really defines the Dead of Winter series, is the Crossroads cards. Now, this is the innovation that actually pretty much created all the hype. Mm. I am not a big fan of modern zombie games. I have Dead of Winter and Dead of Winter Long Night because of this mechanic. And this is the Crossroads cards. So the Crossroads cards, what they do is the person sitting to your right will draw a card at the beginning of your turn before you do any action. And on there, there will be a trigger. And if that trigger happens, they will immediately stop play and this will go through. So 
They will then read what's on the crossroad card and normally you have a choice whether or not to do you know, choice A or choice B without knowing the full consequences of each choice. And this leads to a lot of really interesting occurrences. So you might find new survivors, you might gain morale, you might lose morale, some people might die. There are just a lot of different kinds of events that can come up and in The Long Night they even have some that are mature content, which apparently are a lot more in th the choices are more adult, more no right choice kind of thing. So it really does make the game because as soon as like one of those is triggered, like everyone is like looking at it like, okay, so what's going on now? What's going to be like this random event that happens that triggered because of this? Like did someone new appear? Did a truck like barrel into our camp and oh, yeah. like something like that? Did like this random old man come in and, and ask whether or not to shave us? That kind of stuff. So it's just a really cool mechanic that I think really defines the way this game is played. Absolutely. And this it's a it's a mechanic and it's something that the branding features very heavily. They say, you know, this is a crossroads game. Be on the lookout for more. So it's similar to that card crafting system that we love so much with Mystic Veil. It's something that they're wanting to market. They're wanting to turn it essentially into a, a franchise based on this system rather than this setting but it really is an interesting mechanic it's a really elegant i would say way to introduce dynamism into the game you know you've already got a pretty tight set of mechanics involving resource management and involving making you know sort of sound risk balancing decisions and then to have a mechanic that throws a wrench in those gears without being too terribly forced i think is is a really well designed or rather, is a hallmark of a very well-designed game. I agree, 100%. And it adds to the tension, which you really need to feel in this kind of game. It adds to just so much with it. So it's a great mechanic, and I can't wait to see other games with it. Yeah, so, me neither. Yeah. So. so those are the mechanics of the game. Let's talk about the game feel mm -hmm. a little bit. I personally think, you know, I'm also not a huge fan of zombie games. I'm also not a fan of winter-themed games in as much as there are those. But I think this one does a really good job. All the, the pieces come together. I think the, the theme and the mechanics aren't necessarily dependent on one another, but they fit. You know, there's a, a die to roll whenever you take damage to see whether or not you've been bitten and zombified. And, and everything seems like it works fairly well with the, the theme, all of the mechanics. Yeah, and funny that you mentioned the die. That's also a very interesting mechanic in itself where you roll the die and you can get frostbite, you could get a wound, or you can get bitten. If you get bitten, that character is dead. That's just gone. Now your choice is how to stop the, uh, the zombie virus from spreading. So you can choose the next character who is lowest on the influence scale, which they have on the actual character sheets. That person is either killed immediately mm -hmm. or you roll the zombie die. And if it lands on a blank, they're safe. Otherwise, they are dead. And then the next person, you have to do it again. So it has this little bit of a cascade effect. So you have to see, like, is it worth it to, you know, kill this one person in order to save these other people? But say, you know, you got it on your way to a location where there's no one else. Nothing else happens. So a very interesting other mechanic. Yeah. And everything sort of builds into 
some element of it, whether or not it's the kind of tough decision-making process of, mm-hmm. oh, God, do we prioritize the, the survival of the colony or do we try to save every last person or the, the scarcity of resources and sort of the desperate need to salvage what you can. Everything sort of sort of fits. You know, yeah. It's not necessarily custom-tailored, but it was well-chosen. I think, in each of the cases. Yeah, and I think the feel really does work. You also have helpless survivors, which can show up throughout different events. They come in, so you're not only having the people that are going out and doing stuff, but you also have people that you have to take care of. So, you know, children or elderly, whatever it is, uh, it doesn't really say who they are, but they're just helpless survivors. Mm -hmm. So, altogether, a lot of the actual theme and the mechanics really fit to make the whole game feel very tense, very intense intense and just like you're trying to survive in this zombie apocalypse you really do feel like you're about to get overrun at almost any moment so i think they very much succeed in getting the the game to feel the way that they wanted it to agreed but no game is perfect that's right one of the things that has come up in it i think every single time we've played this game is simply the fact that some of the secret objectives are harder than others And it's not always inherent in the card design. Sometimes it's simply, you know, this particular scenario and this particular secret objective don't play well together, or these two play very nicely together, and they make sure that you're going to be able to pull that off. But from a balance perspective, it's just really, really impossible to say that all of the secret objectives are equally difficult or equally easy to achieve which is a shame when that's the only form of victory. You know, if you've got four people around the table celebrating because they achieved their secret objectives and the fifth person didn't, even though they got the main objective, they're still going to kind of feel like they lost. They're still going to kind of feel left out and like they had a bad time. It's a weird mechanic in that there are people who, even on the winning team, still lose. Right. So it's a little bit strange in that way. And yeah, you're right, they just don't, have them perfectly balanced just yet another part is the rules so there are a lot of rules in this game we touched on a very general uh, overview of how the game is played but when you get into the specifics of how it's played what each of the actions do what you have to do what like can hurt you what can happen and all that it gets to be very very nitty-gritty there's a lot of nitty-gritty and this is, you could play a mid-sized game in the time that it takes to explain the rules to someone. So even though they, they are intuitive and they make sense when you actually like go start playing them, like it's not like they're completely out of left field or anything like that. There are just a lot of them and it, it does make it tough to bring new people in and just have, you know, set aside this time to say, all right, I'm going to explain this new game to you guys for 45 minutes. Because it's a fun game once you get past the explanation, but the explanation is always difficult. Plus, because there are so many rules, there are some that are not fully clear. What happens when certain things happen overrunning and that kind of stuff, especially in the first game. The base game definitely had a lot of ambiguity in the rulebook, which was a bit frustrating to me. Right. Uh, And then finally, in terms of no game being perfect, having lots of rules means having lots of moving parts. This game has a lot of fiddly bits you know, there's lots of them that are cards that are pretty easy to manage, but you've also got cardboard cutouts, you've got plastic stand-ins, you know, you've got so many things, and many of them are quite small, the wound tokens in particular, very small, very easy to slip into the crack between, you know, a table or a chair, 
and lose track of. So just lots and lots of little tiny pieces like that. Not a lot of workarounds for it, but just sort of one of the detriments of a game like this. Exactly, exactly. So that being said, what do you think of this game? What is your final rating? I enjoy this game. I think it's well worth a play it for the base game in particular. Give it a shot. See if you like the sort of hybrid competitive cooperative aspect of it. If you do, then the long night is definitely a buy it. The long night, we didn't talk a whole lot about the differences between the two of them, but it's less of an expansion and more of a a different iteration of the game. You know, they bill it as a standalone expansion, and that's really what it is. It's Dead of Winter with some hot fixes. You know, they they fixed some of the, the mechanics, they clarified some of the rules, they added versatility to a lot of the cards, and I think the game just benefits from it overall. So play the base game, buy the long night. I'm going to echo that exactly. Uh, I also think that the base game, I would call it a play it, especially with with the long night coming out. Uh, if it was just the base game out, I might have said just buy that, but that would have been a little bit iffy for me. You would have had to be the right kind of person. But I think the long night is definitely a really good game, a really good iteration on Dead of Winter. And they went and improved a lot of the things that were frustrating in the first game. And I definitely think that that would be a buy it from me. All right. Last but not least, let's talk about some similar sorts of games. We already mentioned it here in this review, Robinson Crusoe. If you like those very much survival-based, tense, are we even going to make it to the next turn level of cooperative games, Dead of Winter is definitely for you. It has a lot of the same action management. You know, you have limited amounts of things that you can do on each turn, and you have a set amount of resources that you need in order to survive. But if you like Robinson Crusoe, check out Dead of Winter. There you go. Another one would be Zombicide Black Plague. So this is especially in terms of theme. So zombies, if you like them, I personally like this version of Zombicide much more than the other ones. They cleaned up a lot of the mechanics and uh, it's a really cool theme because it's in the Middle Ages. So you have the Black Plague, which created zombies. Cool. Now you get to use your characters, at which you improve just like you would in Dead of Winter. You get new loot, you get other things like that. And you're just going around killing the zombies and trying to achieve a certain objective based on the scenario. So it has a little bit of a different kind of mechanic with uh, the way that you're moving around. It's tactical combat versus uh, resource management, but it still is uh, definitely a good survival kind of game that involves zombies. And finally, Shadow Over Camelot. This is a game that we actually have a fairly limited experience with. We've each only played it one time. But it shares a lot of similarities in terms of being a very narrative-driven game. You have different actions that you can perform at different locations that will trigger new quests, new characters, new items, those sorts of things emerging. And also, importantly, it has the mechanic where there may or may not be a traitor in your midst. So if you like that sort of almost social deduction element of your otherwise cooperative game, check out Shadow Over Camelot. Thank you for joining us for our review of Dead of Winter. Just a reminder, WashingCon tickets are on sale now. So go ahead and get them. WashingCon is September 9th and 10th. And uh, tickets are $40 for adults for both days. If you have kids, it's $10 off. If you are just going to be able to come on Sunday, we actually have Sunday tickets this year. So we have a bit of a reduced price for that. Uh, And same with the children's tickets for that. Otherwise, 
our video should be up, our Century in Review, finally, will be <laughs> up before the next Century, hopefully. So check that out, and, and be sure to join us next week when we review Viceroy. <laughs>